You are listening to a podcast from The National. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor, and today I'm joined by Dania Sadi, Deputy Business Editor. Um, I guess, Dania, the biggest story uh, of the week um, is the, uh, hot off the press in fact, uh, is Adnoc's announcement that it is considering, uh, indeed has implemented, um, hi- hydraulic fracturing technology in the uh, in the UAE. Um, hydraulic fracturing, or fracking as it's known, involves injecting water and solid minerals, uh, solid materials at high pressure to open up very tight rock uh, in order to access um, access gas and uh, oil to uh, um, make it easier to extract from those uh, tight areas, very tight rock. Um, now that makes it the first country in the Middle East to do so, uh, to explore for gas onshore via fracking. Um, I guess, given the enormous uh, discovery uh, just last week of um, what was it, fifteen trillion cubic feet of gas, adding seven point one percent to the Emirates' total proven reserves, the question could be: Why is Adnoc even looking at uh, this this kind of approach? Well, gas is one of the most important uh, energy sources in the UAE. It's used for power generation. It is used in the industrial sector. And as the economy grows and as the UAE's needs for hydrocarbons grow, um, they will need more gas because mm. they want to free up the, u- the gas. They want to um, use gas in power generation rather than using oil. Mm-hmm. They would rather export oil and get um, because it's a high value product and mm-hmm. use instead gas in production, mm-hmm. in, in power production. Mm-hmm. And also with the discovery, Adnoc announced that they want to become self-sufficient in gas. And at one point, they would like to be a net exporter of gas. Right. Um, so all of the for all of these reasons, uh, this discovery um, and plus the, uh, the onshore gas uh, uh, using fracturing techno- technology f- uh, on this uh, onshore gas uh, mm-hmm. deposit is very important. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, we're at early stages yet. The, the, it's it's kind of testing at the moment to see whether the uh, there are commercially um, viable reserves there. Um, at the moment, as you say, uh, the UAE imports some of its gas. Where does that come from? Well, the the like Dubai imports uh, liquefied natural gas that's from the international markets, mm-hmm. and also there is a dolphin gas pipeline that imports uh, some gas uh, from Qatar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if this does prove to be um, uh, commercially viable on a large enough scale, then presumably those uh, those avenues would no longer be needed. In fact, uh, with the Adnoc announcement uh, of the gas discovery, they mentioned that they that Abu Dhabi does produce LNG mm-hmm. but it exports it mainly to Japan okay. and so with and that they going to extend that will help them extend production of LNG up to 2040 mm-hmm. so that uh, will help Abu Dhabi to continue to export this gas product and um, aside from um, using it for power generation can gas like oil be used um, in you know the production of I don't know petrochemicals or not petrochemicals in that case but in you know, in other things rather than just for uh, for power production? Of course, for refining. And uh, the UAE has ambitious uh, plans to produce more petrochemicals. And that would need more gas because mm-hmm. uh, gas is mainly used to produce most of the petrochemicals in the UAE. Okay. And there is a big project to expand petrochemical production in the waste in the Western region. So that fits in nicely with Adnox plans, especially since they would like to spend $45 billion on the downstream industry 
which includes uh, building this integrated refinery in the waste. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting with the, the uh, this fracking news that um, it, it was uh, in conjunction, with the, these tests are in conjunction with Baker Hughes, which of course bought a $550 million um, 5% stake in Adnox drilling subsidiary last month. Um, how do you see that relationship going forward? Should, should again, this, uh, or indeed other hydraulic fracturing um, reserves be found, should they pr- prove to be commercially viable? Well, with such a partner, with such, with such a renowned uh, oil services firm like Baker Hughes, uh, UAE would be able to fast track its fracturing program, um, especially since um, they announced last year uh, that they would like to um, use um, to develop unconventional oil and gas um, uh, and that uh, they want to reach full momentum by 2021 in terms of efficiency and fracking learning curve. Mm-hmm. So they would be in a position, they hope, by then working with Baker Hughes to be able to undertake further um, explorations and possibly um, find other, other reserves and develop those as well. Of course, because Baker Hughes will bring its technology, its experience in the U.S. and other countries, and that would help the UAE uh, go ahead mm. and produce more gas from these unconventional reserves. Mm. And of course, in the U.S., it was uh, Baker Hughes was very much involved in in uh, fracking that sparked a drilling boom um, that enabled the U.S. to to reduce its needs for imports and allowed it to export crude um, and, of course, cut the price of petrol. Um, one presumes that that would have a presumably a similar effect here. Well, uh, since in the UAE we're talking about gas, and this gas is going to be consumed mainly locally, mm-hmm. and uh, after the, the the country reaches self-sufficiency, then they would consider exporting the gas. In the I guess would be in the form of LNG. If they were to export it in its natural form, they would have to build pipelines. So I think it's a bit of a different scenario from the US, where they mainly. Um, uh, the oil mm. was the major mm. game changer for yeah, them. Yeah, sure. And this is gas as opposed to that. Yeah. Um, when when uh, is the are the first sort of um, when about? So are we first expecting um, an appraisal to come about on whether these uh, reserves are commercially viable or not? Do you think? Um, well, uh, it's expected that by next month they will have an idea. Soon. So yeah, it's yeah. quite soon. Mm-hmm. So they must have done a lot of studies mm. and work in order yeah. to to reach that point yeah. and it i mean it's it is a completely different technique to just drilling a, a hole in the ground as it were and um, waiting for this stuff to come out isn't it um i understand that fracturing jobs are typically conducted in in several se- separate stages um how is that different fundamentally from from as i say just drilling a hole in the ground well, these types of formations are uh, quite inaccessible with the with conventional tools. So they will have to go through different processes and that increases the cost. Mm-hmm. But with oil prices this year averaging uh, $73 versus last year when it was $55, mm-hmm. you know, the higher the oil price, economic viability of mm-hmm. such projects mm-hmm. uh, is taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, there's more, more, more cash available off the back of oil, higher oil prices. Um, and uh, the UAE isn't the only um, country in the region with potentially with uh, such reserves. I mean, wh- who else are we looking at uh, that, that might uh, go down the fracking route, do you think? Um, of course, in the UAE, we're talking about unconventional gas, but uh, we just have earlier this year, Bahrain uh, discovered at least 80 billion barrels of uh, tight oil. Tight oil is a form of unconventional oil. 
unconventional oil is uh, oil is crude that can't be pumped very easily. Mm-hmm. It will need special technology. Uh, and uh, the discovery in Bahrain was offshore, while in the UAE, the gas uh, that is being fractured is onshore. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are a number of differences. And is is uh, can you frack offshore? I mean, is it technically possible or is it only an onshore um, technique? No, it could be onshore, offshore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just maybe offshore will be more difficult because mm-hmm. you have to go into depths and uh, involves uh, rigs and a completely different environment. It's always easier to produce onshore if it's conventional um, and it's even more difficult if it's offshore. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Obviously, long term, if it does prove to be uh, commercially viable, this uh, process, that will benefit the economy further. And uh, talking about the economy, the other big story this week uh, was the central bank, the UAE central bank, forecasting that the economy will expand by 4.2% next year, which is considerably uh, higher than the IMF's estimate of 3.7%. Um, I think what's interesting as well about that is that 3.3% growth is forecast in the non-oil uh, GDP sector, uh, and that sector currently accounts for really two, three quarters of the economy. Um, what do you think is has driving the the uh, central bank's uh, bullishness on on the economy um, for next year um the uae economy is the most diversified in the gulf so it's no surprise that uh, that there is a big contribution of the non-oil sector to growth mm-hmm. and uh, it's interlinked with oil because the higher oil prices the higher uh, the revenue that the government uh, gets mm-hmm. from oil. And then it can spend that money on the non-oil sector in different uh, industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Abu Dhabi has announced a three-year 50 billion dirham stimulus program that's accompanied with a number of initiatives that are supposed to help the private sector create jobs, uh, attract foreign direct invest- investments, etc. Uh, on top of that, uh, there have been a lot of initiatives and laws that have been announced recently, including a foreign, a new foreign direct investment law, which will help attract capital, a debt law, which will help uh, uh, in uh, boosting liquidity in financial markets. So all of these initiatives, and the central bank governor, Mubarak al-Mansouri, mentioned many of these initiatives are going to help propel the private sector and uh, boost the economy of that, boost that the, way. Yeah. the overall economy. Yeah. And of course, we also had the news recently of... Um, the UAE um, making a significant leap up the ease of doing business index, didn't we? Um, yes, they moved up uh, around ten places uh, mm-hmm. in the World Bank uh, in the World Bank uh, report. So that shows that the UAE is taking um, concrete steps. Not just it's, it's not just talk; it's actually action, mm-hmm. and that's reflected uh, in the World Bank report. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, and it's it's uh, coming to fruition. Um, Obviously, the the UAE banking sector is is a primary um, key plank of of, uh, of the economy, aside from uh, oil, obviously. Um, now, the the central bank is is confident that this, the banking sector is is liquid and strong, um, with credit growth uh, to the private sector increasing six point five percent in the first nine months of this year. Um, but also, Islamic banking is growing, isn't it? Um, that that appears to be growing faster, even. Yeah, it's growing at around 9% uh, a year, and that's impressive. And it's no surprise because uh, Islamic banking uh, doesn't take risks. And you have a lot of Islamic investors around the world who uh, buy sukuk mm-hmm. issued by the uh, by Gulf countries, including the UAE, 
who like to invest in uh, Sharia compliant products and uh, the actually the assets of the Islamic banks uh, uh, in the UAE uh, account for around 20% of total assets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, uh, so that's quite a significant yeah. uh, piece of the pie. Yeah. And also, of course, there's the um, um, uh, consolidation in the banking sector taking place um, and that there may be additional mergers uh, apart from um, ADCB, Union Bank, and Al-Hilal Bank who are in talks to merge. Um now, I believe the, the central bank governor said that, that could end up being two banks. Um, do you think that, that that kind of consolidation will continue over the next uh, sort of 18 months, year to 18 months? Uh, the central bank governor did mention that he expects more consolidation, although at the moment, besides the three-way tie-up, there are no concrete plans. He did mention also that there are a lot of super big banks in the region. Mm. And in order to compete uh, among these banks, you need the big banks. And we we should mention that last year, first um, last year, the National Bank of Abu Dhabi and First Gulf Bank merged and created one of the biggest banks in the Middle East in terms of assets. Those FAB, yeah. Yeah, mm. uh, the, which is now called First Abu Dhabi Bank. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's going to allow the UAE to compete regionally, not not just uh, for UAE banks to compete regionally mm-hmm. and not just in the local market to attract uh, uh, more business. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense because there are over 50 banks in the UAE. It's a, an overbanked market. So it makes sense to have more consolidation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, the governor also emphasized that the bank will maintain its peg to the dollar. Um Given that the U.S. Uh, is, appears to be on a, a path of uh, uh, hiking rates faster than it was, how do you think that might impact um, the situation here? Uh, of course, it's going to impact here. There are positive um, outcomes and negative outcomes of that. Um, the negative outcome is, uh, for example, uh, the interest rate on mortgages will go up, and that mm. might impact people's decision to um, get a loan to buy a house. But uh, higher interest rates will help banks uh, increase their net interest income. And uh, despite all of this, the central bank governor mentioned that uh, banks continue to lend to the um, property sector. Mm. So it's not stopping them. No, from, sure. It's not stopping them. They, they still see value. Of course, they're going to be very selective. Mm-hmm. But uh, the momentum continues. Yeah, yeah. So as we as we said, the the non oil um, uh, sector is uh, is a, a powerful uh, part of the whole economy, and part of um, the the uh, non oil sector, of course, is the development of technology in this country, and it's to technology that we turn next. Uh, recently, I was joined by Omar Darwish, general manager of uh, Not a Cliche, and William Gardner, the chief executive of Eight Marketing, and we talked about um, just how radically technology is changing the face of marketing, uh, specifically in this country, as digital tools become a mainstay of operations. Um, multiple new avenues opening up through which to drive co- the corporate message and attract a wider range of audiences. And uh, Omar and William um, gave a fascinating insight into this uh, rapidly developing sector. First of all, welcome, William and Omar. Um, thanks for your time this afternoon. Um, Omar, I wonder if you could uh, give us a, a brief sort of insight into what uh, the Not A Cliché consultancy uh, in Dubai does. I, I see it's, it's re- referred to as a hybrid communications agency. Um, how, how, did, how and when did you set it up and what, what, does, uh, what does it do? Um, well, not a cliche was an idea in the beginning of the year. Um, 
where I was in a completely different field, investment banking, um, with marketing being uh, a hobby, I would say. And then we found a gap in the market where um, we like being creative, we like PR, we like social media, we like digital marketing, we like doing events and production, but we, I think the market was missing a 360 um, uh, marketing agency that has all this combined. Um, and obviously we've, we all know that economies around the world aren't doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, agencies used to hire a single, uh, I mean, clients used to hire a single agency for each and every one of those. Um, so we thought that it's always better to have one agency that combines all these. Um, and then the idea of having a boutique agency is also something we found very interesting from clients because um, clients have been getting a bit bored of like the same mainstream media marketing ideas um, uh, seeing over and over again from different agencies. So they wanted fresh blood, young blood, uh, new people with new ideas, uh, I guess a little more creativity, which is which is why we're all here. Yeah. Um, so that's how it all really started. And then we launched in the second quarter of this year. Mm-hmm. And, and it's based in Dubai, yeah? And it is based, yes, in Dubai. And William, um, you've been around a little bit longer. Um, I, I, tell me a bit about what um, Ape Marketing does. So we actually started about five years ago in the United States. We expanded into Europe about two, two and a half years ago. And then July of last year, we came to Dubai. Uh, right now, it really seems like we're just focused more on social media and social media content creation, where I think there's a, a lot of agencies that are pretty much just either you get a freelance photographer, videographer who creates the content, but then doesn't distribute it, or you get a social media company who will manage your social media, but doesn't actually create the content. And we've kind of found that middle lane where we can actually help with the creative process, create the content, and then manage the rollout and kind of execution of the whole kind of campaign. Um, and so really, it's just been mostly focused on social media, it seems like. there are there, We still have some clients that, you know, use us for Google and mm-hmm. SEO and stuff, but it's it's mostly focused on kind of content creation, social media management. William, we were talking briefly earlier about uh, how um, the digital world and digital marketing is it, it could almost be perceived as turning into like advertising as entertainment. Um, yeah. Uh, you, were, you were mentioning that there, there were... There were differences here in how content is created and consumed as compared to the U.S. Um, I, I wonder if you could uh, maybe enlighten us a bit more on that. Um, well, I mean, obviously, there's there is you know a cultural difference in what you can do in video specifically. I would say with like locals and non-locals, mm-hmm. there's a kind of a small difference there. Um, and, and just different platforms just tend to appeal to different age demographics and also cultural demographics. Mm-hmm. Like Snapchat is way more popular with locals than it is expats. Mm-hmm. Instagram is popular across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Do you think is is there any? Can you pinpoint any kind of reason? My why, personal why? thought is the privacy aspect of Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Um, just the ability to send a video and it's only to ten of your friends. Where once you kind of put it on Instagram, anyone that's I following see, you yeah. can see that. Yeah. Now Instagram did just create kind of a new thing with your close friends, so they're they're always trying to kind of one up Snapchat. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're always like kind of whatever Snapchat is, like figure out how to do that and just do it a little bit better, yeah. so that yeah. way nobody goes there. But th- I think Snapchat will always kind of have that. There's a, the younger kind of crowd tends to like it just because they don't want their parents and everyone to know mm-hmm, what they're mm-hmm, doing, mm-hmm. even if they're not doing something wrong. Yeah, sure. They just it's, like it's, the privacy aspect natural, of yeah, it. Yeah. I think the reason why Instagram does so well specifically in Dubai is just because it's so driven by imagery. Mm-hmm. And Dubai mm-hmm. is saying, all about yeah. imagery and kind of the glitz and the glamour yeah. of it. So it does really well. Yeah. Um, but believe it or not, one of the platforms that surprised me that does well here is actually LinkedIn. 
Oh, really? um, okay. A lot of my clients, uh, when we push them, we push them to have content on LinkedIn because a lot of them are B2B, but even the people that are on LinkedIn, they're still consumers of something. Um, so they can still find a personal trainer or a gym or really anything related to a service or a product and still find value it on, on LinkedIn. So I think what I've learned is just touch them all. Don't, don't convince yourself that you know what they want mm -hmm. or where they're going to find you. Um, my father loves Facebook and he reposts the most awkward things ever, you know, <laughs> like I'm embarrassed yeah. when I see what my dad reposts, but he, you know, he's a 55, six year old male yeah. who there's a demographic for him for marketing. So you don't want to not be on Facebook just because you're not really a Facebook user. If you're a company or a business, you know, yeah. platforms and they'll follow you back. Do you think, um, are there are certain industries or sectors that, um, are more successfully, uh, uh, tr you know, sort of transforming into uh, the to the digital world um, from traditional media. Do you think there are some sectors either maybe more tailor made for that kind of transition, or that are more proactive in doing that successfully? Well, I think yeah. So it's more about who's proactive and, and who's reacting to what everything is happening. So we're obviously seeing um, we're seeing fashion and we're seeing fashion and beauty and sports. You know, mm -hmm. follow this trend straight away, and and they want this exposure and. And they know a lot more about it, whereas we're seeing CEOs of you know the top ten uh, companies in, in UAE uh, reacting to what they have seen others do and trying to do it on a much broader scale. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just it's it's all about who is there first to pick mm -hmm. this trend up and then and who's following. And do you think William, um, for instance, something like an oil major uh, ha has? equally uh, opportunity to engage in a digital uh, sense as say as as Omar said uh, you know a beauty or fashion brand does yeah i mean i think that the idea behind content is just to you know talk about your product service or tell a story mm -hmm. really and telling the story of your business whether it's a family business or however it came about whether it's in the oil industry or the fashion industry telling that story may lean someone to want to work with you if it's not just a big corporation you know, a lot of, just kind of staying in the oil industry and the idea is that, you know, a lot of them probably started out as family businesses and they've mm -hmm. become this huge conglomerate that is a billion dollar company, but it didn't start there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes telling that story um, can sway someone to want to work with you because it becomes more personal. It becomes not just a big organization, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, everybody has the opportunity to tell their true authentic story mm -hmm. through content mm -hmm. and deliver that message. And of course, I guess in the, in the case of, 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 for instance, a big oil company, um, the, the general perception, the general public perception of that uh, company as something more human than perhaps it's presented yeah. as, uh, you know, a massive conglomerate, um, is going to have uh, positive effects, which are possibly not measurable as such. Um, yeah. But uh, but again, you know, it doesn't help only the the company, but but also the 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 culture and the the region from where that company is, um, because obviously digital is global. So well, that and also, I mean, that industry has had ups and downs. Mm. They've had mm -hmm. struggles. They've had where it was a high price and a low price, and the ups and downs mm. and the economic effects of that. That's a real story that mm. can affect people. You know, like Dubai has the story of the glitz and the glamour, but 2008, 2009 affected them. Mm. And even the Burj Khalifa had a hard time finishing. There was mm -hmm. that struggle, but they finished it. And people will respect 
and follow that more than just the end result of how great it is. Yeah, you know, people yeah. want to know you went through a struggle and you made it. Yeah, yeah. And they're more likely to follow you and be more engaged with you if they see that you had a human struggle yeah. like they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking of humans, Omar, um, I wonder, could you give a Luddite like me, um, what is a social influencer? Oh wow! It's uh, it's the Tupac and Kurt Cobain of of, of 2018. You know, it's uh, it's people that actually make a difference in in people's lives. You know, Tupac used to say great words, and people used to love him until today. You know, mm-hmm. and he was 25 years old, yeah. which is what you see now with influencers. You know, from anywhere from 16 to 25, 26, and they have a huge influence on a lot of communities, mm. a lot of sectors, a lot of people, whether they're local or uh, or international, and. Uh, and I guess that's what the modern influencer is. It's it's a person who's trusted by a large group of people, which is why businesses try to use that shortcut to get a person that's trustworthy and who trusts a lot of people that can trust in their brand. And William, you were talking earlier about uh, diff- one of the, the differences between uh, this region and, and, say, the U.S. is when it comes to something like a social uh, social influencer in, in, in the way that uh, Omar has described, um, a, a much smaller uh, following here will work uh, as well as as um, uh, wouldn't work in the U.S. For instance, yeah. you would. Well, I think it's just major brands um, wouldn't reach out to people with a smaller smaller, let's say, fifty thousand to a hundred thousand. Adidas wouldn't necessarily call them and say, "Okay, let me send you some free shoes." Mm-hmm. Um, because in U.S., Europe, you have kind of bigger brand names or like a LeBron James or a Kobe Bryant or Cristiano Ronaldo where they're going to work with them and have kind of bigger, massive campaigns where here you don't really have that local sports star as much. So the local fitness guy or fitness girl can get to an Adidas or a Nike or a Sony. So it's a unique opportunity, really. Uh, to work with major brands and elevate themselves on an international level um, that they wouldn't normally have in kind of Western countries where there's kind of local sports teams. That's kind of one specific industry. Um, But definitely, usually the the level of following needs to be a little bit higher than I've seen here, like Mm -hmm. 50,000, 25,000, even Mm -hmm. 100,000. You can still have those relationships. Mm -hmm. But I think in the end... what kind of what um, what you were just saying is that it, it, it is way more about engagement than the amount of followers. Yeah, yeah. You could have 10,000 followers that are half of them are really engaging and constantly commenting and really active versus you have 100,000 and you still only get 5,000 people engaging. It's the yeah. same. So it's it's better to have a, a strong engagement than it is a big following. And how, Omar, how would you in that case um, relate to a client uh, how successful the the campaign they're running with you is in re- with regards to how engaging is it how do, how do you how do you let your client uh, how do you measure it for your client to give them some relevant data as to the the uh, you know whatever they pay for the service uh, how how do how do you let them know that they are getting if you like value for money well um, it's it's much easier now because there's a lot of analytical tools out there and, and these are not only on Instagram, they're across all social media. So just seeing, you know, the number of people who like your uh, like your post versus the number of people you have or the number of people who commented. Um, I mean, same thing with YouTube, same thing with Twitter. Um, so it's just it's it's much easier now to to get these applications ready. And then they send you reports with with everything you need to know, mm-hmm. you know, the, the how, how much the brand grew, how much the followers grew. Uh, the pace, uh, what's expected as well, because you can base forecasts on on mm-hmm. previous data. Um, so I guess it's a bunch of all that combined, and, and analytical tools does it all for you. Mm-hmm. I think um, you know overall, 
the outlook is very positive, isn't it? But th there must be examples of, of where um, this kind of digital approach has, has failed miserably. I mean, William, are you aware of any that, uh, that perhaps you might flag as a warning to uh, those who, who might be considering it? I think, Not specific names. Yeah, I think but. the biggest thing that I see just kind of here in the market is it seems like most of the larger brands work with PR companies and they don't, and a lot of the big PR companies don't really do digital marketing. They have a digital division, let's say, but they don't do digital marketing. And I would say one of the things that we try to focus on when we work with social influencers or kind of go down that, that road is we still treat it as a digital marketing campaign and we put all the tracking mechanisms in place, like in, in almost kind of like an affiliate marketing program. So it's like, you know, you used to buy ad space on a website and there was a little display banner and then you clicked on it. Well, there was a tracking that said how many clicks, how many people converted. And so we kind of treat it the same way. Like if we run an Instagram swipe up story, there's going to be a unique tracking URL that we can tell the brand how many times did someone click on it? And then how many times did somebody order? Mm -hmm. So that way you can say this influencer is getting you sales. This influencer doesn't. I can't tell you why. Mm -hmm. Specifically, mm -hmm. we can maybe give them some ideas, but we can say, but this guy gets you sales mm -hmm. and this one doesn't. So let's focus on his content mm -hmm. and focus mm -hmm. on driving sales through him. I think the biggest thing is to not treat it like digital marketing, yeah. to just focus on the exposure factor. And I mean, the, the unique part of the digital space is there is so many analytical data points that you can track and it's not, you don't want to break it down to just a nerdy science mm. and there is still a feel to it, but the numbers are what they are. Um, and if someone's getting you results on their Instagram page and someone isn't, it's pretty easy to figure that out if you think about it in terms of digital marketing. I wonder, William, and I'll ask you, Omar, in a moment, what do you sort of see as the, as the PR trends uh, over the next sort of three to five years in this region particularly? Is it, where, where do you think it's going to develop? I, I think from what I can see is I think a lot of people are moving to developing content. I mean, that's really where it's going. People are focusing on YouTube, podcasts. Um, I think podcasts are going to be bigger here. Um, I think a lot of people like YouTube and they like to consume it, but it is kind of sitting down in front of a laptop and actually consuming it where podcasts, you can listen to it on your phone while you're driving to work. Um, I think overall people are just moving towards that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I don't want to make it sound like just the average person, but I'm, I, I would consider myself just a normal guy. Mm -hmm. And I created a show about Dubai on YouTube and met, you know, 50 entrepreneurs by basically just DMing them on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Um, outside of the investment in the equipment and microphones, I didn't have much investment to become a content creator. Um, and I think a lot of people are starting to see that. And I think a lot of people are starting to see that, hey, this average person did this and now he's someone I can do that. So I think a lot of people are going to start focusing on that. And how do you say, Amaro? Um, I think it's all going to fall down to uh, to creativity, really. Um, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of PR agencies. We're seeing a lot of consolidated businesses. I mean, uh, like what we're doing today, you know, combining PR with social, with marketing, with production, and uh, it's it's not rocket science, really, you know. But it all falls down to what you can create and how that's going to be different and how excited the client's going to be about it. Um, because otherwise, it's all just uh, plain vanilla and it's all same PR. And, and and clients obviously get accustomed to this and use this, and they've always they will always want more. Mm -hmm. Omar, William, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's been fascinating, <laughs> even, even for an old timer like myself. <laughs> thank <laughs> thank you. you. Thanks very much, guys. Many thanks to uh, Omar Darwish, General Manager of Not A Cliche, and William Gardner, Chief Exec of Ape Marketing, uh, for that fascinating insight um, into the wonderful world of technological marketing. 
That was the Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelson. I'd like to thank Karma Groom, the producer for today's show. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.